This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Tragedy of Puddinhead Wilson by Mark Twain Chapter 14 Roxana Insists Upon Reform the true southern watermelon is a boon apart, and not to be mentioned with commoner things. It is chief of this world's luxuries, king by the grace of God over all the fruits of the earth. When one has tasted it, he knows what the angels eat. It was not a southern watermelon that Eve took. We know it, because she repented. Puddinhead Wilson's Calendar. About the time that Wilson was bowing the committee out, Pembroke Howard was entering the next house to report. He found the old judge sitting grim and straight in his chair, waiting. Well, Howard, the news? The best in the world. Accepts, does he? and the light of battle gleamed joyously in the judge's eye. Accepts why he jumped at it. Did, did he? Now that's fine, that's very fine. I like that. When is it to be? Now, straight off, tonight. An admirable fellow. Admirable. Admirable? He's a darling. Why, it's an honor as well as a pleasure to stand up before such a man. Come, off with you. Go and arrange everything, and give him my heartiest compliments. A rare fellow indeed, an admirable fellow, as you have said. I'll have him in the vacant stretch between Wilson's and the haunted house within the hour, and I'll bring my own pistols. Judge Driscoll began to walk the floor in a state of pleased excitement, but presently he stopped and began to think of Tom. Twice he moved toward the secretary, and twice he turned away again, but finally he said, This may be my last night on the earth. I must not take the chance. He is worthless and unworthy, but it is largely my fault. He was entrusted to me by my brother on his dying bed, and I have indulged him to his hurt instead of training him up severely and making a man of him. I have violated my trust, and I must not add the sin of desertion to that. I have forgiven him once already, and would subject him to a long and hard trial before forgiving him again if I could live. But I must not run that risk. No, I must restore the will. But if I survive the duel, I will hide it away, and he will not know, and I will not tell him until he reforms, and I see that his reformation is going to be permanent. He redrew the will, and his ostensible nephew, 
was heir to a fortune again. As he was finishing his task, Tom, wearied with another brooding tramp, entered the house and went tiptoeing past the sitting-room door. He glanced in and hurried on, for the sight of his uncle was nothing but terrors for him to-night. But his uncle was writing. That was unusual at this late hour. What could he be writing? A chill of anxiety settled down upon Tom's heart. Did that writing concern him? He was afraid so. He reflected that when ill luck begins, it does not come in sprinkles, but in showers. He said he would get a glimpse of that document, or know the reason why. He heard someone coming, and stepped out of sight and hearing. It was Pembroke Howard. What could be hatching? Howard said with great satisfaction, Everything is right and ready. He's gone to the battleground with his second and the surgeon, also with his brother. I've arranged it all with Wilson. Wilson's his second. We are to have three shots apiece. Good. How is the moon? Bright as day, nearly. Perfect for the distance. Fifteen yards. No wind. Not a breath. Hot and still. All good. All first-rate. Here, Pembroke, read this and witness it. Pembroke read and witnessed the will, then gave the old man's hand a hearty shake and said, now that's right, York, but I knew you would do it. You couldn't leave that poor chap to fight along without means or profession, with certain defeat before him. And I knew you wouldn't, for his father's sake, if not for his own. For his father's sake I couldn't, I know, for poor Percy. But you know what Percy was to me. But mind, Tom is not to know of this unless I fall to-night. I understand. I'll keep the secret. The judge put the will away, and the two started for the battleground. In another minute the will was in Tom's hands. His misery vanished. His feelings underwent a tremendous revulsion. He put the will carefully back in its place, and spread his mouth, and swung his hat once, twice, three times around his head, in imitation of three rousing huzzas, no sound issuing from his lips. He fell to communing with himself excitedly and joyously, but every now and then he let off another volley of dumb hurrahs. He said to himself, I've got the fortune again, but I'll not let on that I know about it, and this time I'm going to hang on to it. I take no more risks. I'll gamble no more. I'll drink no more, because, well, because I'll not go where there is any of that sort of thing going on again. It's the sure way, and the only sure way. I might have thought of that sooner, 
well, yes, if I had wanted to. But now, dear me, I've had a scare this time, and I'll take no more chances. Not a single chance more. Land! I persuaded myself this evening that I could fetch him around without any great amount of effort, but I've been getting more and more heavy-hearted and doubtful straight along ever since. If he tells me about this thing, all right. But if he doesn't, I shan't let on. I... Well, I'd like to tell Puddinhead Wilson, but... No, I'll think about that. Perhaps I won't. He whirled off another dead huzzah, and said, I'm reformed, and this time I'll stay so, sure. He was about to close with a final grand silent demonstration, when he suddenly recollected that Wilson had put it out of his power to pawn or sell the Indian knife, and that he was once more in awful peril of exposure by his creditors for that reason. His joy collapsed utterly, and he turned away and moped toward the door, moaning and lamenting over the bitterness of his luck. He dragged himself upstairs, and brooded in his room a long time, disconsolate and forlorn, with Luigi's Indian knife for a text. At last he sighed and said, when I supposed these stones were glass and this ivory bone, the thing hadn't any interest for me, because it hadn't any value and couldn't help me out of my trouble. But now, why, now it is full of interest, yes, and of a sort to break a body's heart. It's a bag of gold that is turned to dirt and ashes in my hands. It could save me and save me so easily, and yet I've got to go to ruin. It's like drowning with a life preserver in my reach. All the hard luck comes to me, and all the good luck goes to other people. Puddinhead Wilson, for instance. Even his career has got a sort of a little start at last, and what has he done to deserve it, I should like to know. Yes, he has opened his own road, but he isn't content with that, but must block mine. It's a sordid, selfish world, and I wish I was out of it. He allowed the light of the candle to play upon the jewels of the sheath, but the flashings and sparklings had no charm for his eye. They were only just so many pangs to his heart. I must not say anything to Roxy about this thing, he said. She is too daring. She would be for digging these stones out and selling them, and then, why, she would be arrested, and the stones traced, and then... The thought made him quake, and he hid the knife away, trembling all over, and glancing furtively about like a criminal who fancies that the accuser is already at hand. Should he try to sleep? Oh, no, sleep was not for him. His trouble was too haunting, too afflicting for that. He must have somebody to mourn with. He would carry his despair to Roxy.
He had heard several distant gunshots, but that sort of thing was not uncommon, and they had made no impression upon him. He went out at the back door and turned westward. He passed Wilson's house, and proceeded along the lane, and presently saw several figures approaching Wilson's place through the vacant lots. These were the duelists returning from the fight. He thought he recognized them, but as he had no desire for white people's company, he stooped down behind the fence until they were out of his way. Roxy was feeling fine. She said, "'Where was you, child? Weren't you in it?' "'In what?' "'In the duel.' "'Duel? Has there been a duel?' "'Coste has. The old judge has been having a duel with one of them twins.' "'Great Scott!' Then he added to himself, "'That's what made him remake the will. He thought he might get killed, and it softened him toward me. And that's what he and Howard were so busy about. Oh, dear!' If the twin had only killed him, I should be out of my... What is you mumbling about, Chambers? Where was you? Didn't you know there was going to be a duel? No, I didn't. The old man tried to get me to fight one with Count Luigi, but he didn't succeed, so I reckon he concluded to patch up the family honor himself. He laughed at the idea and went rambling on with a detailed account of his talk with the judge, and how shocked and ashamed the judge was to find that he had a coward in his family. He glanced up at last, and got a shock himself. Roxana's bosom was heaving with suppressed passion, and she was glowering down upon him with measureless contempt written in her face. And you refused to fight a man that kicked you, instead of jumping at the chance? And you ain't got no more feeling than to come and tell me that fetched such a poor low-down ornery rabbit into the world? Pah! It make me sick. It's the nigger in you, that's what it is. Thirty-one parts of you is white, and only one part nigger, and that poor little one part is your soul. Tain't worth saving. Tain't worth toting out on a shovel and throwing in the gutter. You has disgraced your birth. What would your pa think of you? It's enough to make him turn in his grave. The last three sentences stung Tom into a fury, and he said to himself that if his father were only alive and in reach of assassination, his mother would soon find that he had a very clear notion of the size of his indebtedness to that man, and was willing to pay it up in full, and would do it, too, even at risk of his life. But he kept his thought to himself. That was the safest in his mother's present state. Whatever has come o' yo Essex blood, that's what I can't understand. And it ain't only just Essex blood that's in you, not by a long sight. Deed it ain't. 
my great-great-great-grandfather and yo great-great-great-great-grandfather was old Cap'n John Smith, the highest blood that old Virginia ever turned out. And his great-great-grandmother, or summers along back there, was Pocahontas, the engine queen. And her husband was a nigger king out in Africa. And yet, here you is, a slinkin' out in a duel and disgracing our whole line like a ornery low-down hound. Yes, it's the nigger in you. She sat down on her candle-box and fell into a reverie. Tom did not disturb her. He sometimes lacked prudence, but it was not in circumstances of this kind. Roxana's storm went gradually down, but it died hard, and even when it seemed to be quite gone, it would now and then break out in a distant rumble, so to speak, in the form of muttered ejaculations. One of these was, "'Ain't nigger enough in him to show in his fingernails, and that takes mighty little, yet there's enough to pain his soul.' Presently she muttered, "'Yes, sir, enough to paint a whole thimbleful of em. At last her ramblings ceased altogether, and her countenance began to clear. A welcome sight to Tom, who had learned her moods, and knew she was on the threshold of good humor now. He noticed that, from time to time, she unconsciously carried her finger to the end of her nose. He looked closer and said, why, Mammy, the end of your nose is skinned. How did that come? She sent out the sort of whole-hearted peal of laughter which God had vouchsafed in its perfection to none but the happy angels in heaven and the bruised and broken black slave on the earth, and said, Dad, fetch that duel. I'd be in it myself. Gracious, did a bullet do that? Yes, sir, you bet it did. Well, I declare. Why, how did that happen? Happened this away. I's a settin' here, kind of dozin' in the dark, and chabang goes a gun right out there. I skips along out towards t'other end of the house to see what's gwine on, and stops by the old winder on the side towards Puddin'head Wilson's house that ain't got no sash in it. But they ain't none of em got any sashes for as dat's concerned. And I stood down in the dark and look out, and dar in the moonlight right down under me as one of the twins a cussin'. Not much, but just a cussin' soft. It is the brown un that is cussin', cause he is hittin' the shoulder. And Dr. Claypool, he's a-workin' on him. And Puddin'head Wilson, he is a-helpin' old Judge Driscoll, and Pem Howard is a-standin' out yonder a little piece, waitin' for him to get ready again. And directly, they squared off and give the word, and bang, bang, went the pistols. And the twin, he say, ouch! hit him in the hand this time, and I hear that same bullet go spat again the logs under the winder, and the next time they shoot the twins say, ouch, again, 
and I done it too, cause de bullet glance on his cheekbone and skip up here and glance on de side of de winder and whiz right across my face and tuck de hide off in my nose. Why, if I'd a been just a inch or a inch and a half further, twould a took de whole nose and disfigured me. Here's de bullet. I hunted her up. Did you stand there all the time? That's a question to ask, ain't it? What else would I do? Does I get a chance to see a duel every day? Why, you were right in range. Weren't you afraid? The woman gave a sniff of scorn. Afraid? The smith Pocahontas ain't afraid of nothing, let alone bullets. They've pluck enough, I suppose. What they lack is judgment. I wouldn't have stood there. Nobody's accusing you. Did anybody else get hurt? Yes, we all got hit, except the blonde twin and the doctor and the seconds. The judge didn't get hurt, but I hear Puddinhead say the bullet snipped some of his hair off. George, said Tom to himself, to come so near being out of my trouble and miss it by an inch. Oh, dear, dear, he will live to find me out and sell me to some nigger trader yet. Yes, and he would do it in a minute. Then he said aloud in a grave tone, Mother, we are in an awful fix. Roxana caught her breath with a spasm and said, Child, what you hit a body so sudden for like that? What's been and gone and happened? Well, there's one thing I didn't tell you. When I wouldn't fight, he tore up the will again, and... Roxana's face turned dead white, and she said, Now you's done, done forever. That's the end. Both of us is going to starve to wait and hear me through, can't you? I reckon that when he resolved to fight himself, he thought he might get killed and not have a chance to forgive me any more in this life. So he made the will again, and I have seen it, and it's all right. But... Oh, thank goodness, then we's safe again. Safe. And so what did you want to come here and talk such dreadful? Hold on, I tell you, and let me finish. The swag I gathered won't half square me up. And the first thing we know, my creditors, well, you know what'll happen. Roxana dropped her chin and told her son to leave her alone. She must think this matter out. Presently, she said impressively, You got to go mighty careful now, I tell you. And here's what you got to do. He didn't get killed, and if you gives him the least reason, he'll bust the will again, and that's the last time, now you hear me. So you's got to show him what you can do in the next few days. You got to be pisin' good and let him see it. You got to do everything that'll make him believe in you, and you got to sweeten around old Aunt Pratt, too. She's powerful strong with the judge and the best friend you got. Next, you'll go long way to St. Louis, and that'll keep him in your favor. 
Then you go and make a bargain with them people. You tell them he ain't going to live long, and that's the fact, too. And tell them you'll pay him interest, and big interest, too. Ten per, what you call it? Ten percent a month? That's it. Then you take and sell your truck around a little at a time and pay the interest. How long will it last? I think there's enough to pay the interest five or six months. Then you's all right. If he don't die in six months, that don't make no difference. Providence'll provide. You's going to be safe if you behaves. She bent an austere eye on him and added, And you is going to behave. Does you know that? He laughed, and said he was going to try anyway. She did not unbend. She said gravely, Tryin' ain't the thing. You's gwine to do it. You ain't gwine to steal a pin, cause it ain't safe no mo, and you ain't gwine into no bad company, not even once, you understand? And you ain't gwine to drink a drop, nary a single drop, and you ain't going to gamble one single gamble, not one. This ain't what you's going to try to do, it's what you's going to do. And I'll tell you how I knows it. This is how. I's going to follow along to St. Louis my own self, and you's going to come to me every day of your life, and I'll look you over, and if you fails in one single one of them things, just one, I take my oath I'll come straight down to this town and tell the judge you's a nigger and a slave and prove it. She paused to let her words sink home. Then she added, Chambers, does you believe me when I says that? Tom was sober enough now. There was no levity in his voice when he answered. Yes, mother, I know now that I am reformed, and permanently, permanently, and beyond the reach of any human temptation. Then go along home and begin. End of chapter 14